You know, summer after my first year in Bible college, I was in Washington, D.C. working for Davy Tree Company, and one day I was riding in the truck with my boss and got the chance to share part of my testimony with him. And after I talked about how Jesus Christ and his death on the cross had changed my life, he turned to me and he said, you know, I just don't see how something one man did 2,000 years ago could have any impact on me today. And I didn't realize it at the time, but Paul actually wrote half a chapter dealing with that very issue. And it's the last half of chapter 5. Because all that Paul has been saying up until now in the book of Romans revolves around one particular man and one particular deed. Our entire salvation is based on one man and one deed. And that's clear in the first part of chapter 5 where Paul tells us the benefits of believing. We have peace, grace, hope, joy, love, security, worship, and they all come to us through one man, Jesus Christ, and one deed, His sacrificial death. In fact, look at verse 1 of chapter 5, right at the end. It says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, one man. Verse 2, through whom, one man, we have obtained our access into this grace in which we stand. Verse 6 says at the end, Christ, one man, died for the ungodly, one deed. The end of verse 8, Christ, one man, died for us, one deed. Verse 9 says, having now been justified by His blood, one man, one deed. Verse 10, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, one man, one deed. And verse 11 says, we exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, one man. You see, it was Jesus Christ by His death who provided our salvation, our redemption, our justification. It was that one act by one man at one point in time that has brought salvation to any man who comes by faith at any time in history. And so having said all that, Paul anticipated the question that my boss asked. How can that be? How can the deed of one man affect so many men? How can one man's deed in one point in time have a timeless influence on the world? And to make his point, Paul uses an illustration. Now, he did that in chapter 4. To illustrate faith, he went back to Abraham. This time, he takes us back to Adam. And he's going to illustrate the principle that many can be affected by one man's deed. And that's clearly the point here because the word one is used 13 times in these verses. One man's deed can affect the world. Now, James Boyce says this is the most difficult passage in the book of Romans, possibly the most difficult in the Bible. So I want to make it simple today. We're going to look at it in two sections. We're going to look at the corresponding figure, and then we're going to look at the contrasting factors. First of all, the corresponding figure in verses 12 to 14. Notice verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. How could the deed of one man affect so many? Paul takes us back to a corresponding figure, Adam. 
And I want us to look carefully at verse 12 because there are three phrases in here that are stocked full of information. Notice the first phrase in verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world. Now he's taking us back to Genesis chapter 3. He's taking us back to the Garden of Eden. We're all familiar with the story. In fact, most cartoons and humorous stories blame the woman for the mess we're in today. But if you'll notice carefully here, Paul says, sin entered the world through the man. In 1 Timothy 2.14, Paul says, Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. You see, there was a difference in their sin. Eve sinned as an individual. Adam sinned as a representative of the entire race. Eve was deceived. Adam sinned knowing full well what he was doing. Now, it's true that Eve sinned first. I suppose if she had not sinned first, she could have used the excuse, well, I was just following the leadership of my husband. But she couldn't use that excuse. She sinned first. But you see, even her fall was based on the later fall of Adam because Adam was the representative of the entire human race. And the sin which caused the ruin of the race was willful, determined rebellion on the part of Adam. Eve sinned. He consciously chose to join her in that sin. And Paul's point is that that one sin affected the entire world. Through one man's act of eating some fruit, sin entered the world. Now, when he talks about the world here, he's not talking about the earth. Sin was already in the earth because Satan was on the earth. He's using the word world here the way it's used in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, the people, mankind. And so what he's saying here is that when when Adam sinned, sin entered into mankind. Now, apart from the story of his fall, it's rather remarkable to me how little the Bible actually says about Adam. He was created by God. He was commanded to take dominion over creation. He fell. The first blood sacrifice was made for him. He had several children. The first, Cain, was a murderer. The second, Abel, was a martyr. The third, Seth, was the progenitor of the race and the one through whom God fulfilled multiplying the earth. We also are told Adam's age at death, and that's it. That's a rather meager biography. But there are two stupendous facts that make Adam one of the most famous names in history. He was the first man and he was the first sinner. He dissipated his children's heritage and we have all felt the impact of that spiritual poverty. Through one man, sin entered mankind. Now, the Jews understood this principle better than we do. In fact, it's illustrated in their history. Perhaps the clearest example is the story of Achan back in Joshua chapter 6 and 7. That's when God told Israel to go to Jericho and destroy Jericho and burn everything with fire. Achan went to Jericho and he looked in and he saw a really pretty coat and some nice silver and gold and he took them and he hid them in his tent. And as a result of that one sin... All of Israel felt the consequences because they lost the next battle at Ai. And when Joshua inquired of the Lord, God said in Joshua 7, 11, Israel has sinned. 
Not Achan has sinned. Israel has sinned. One man brought sin on the entire nation. And you remember when the Lord finally singled out Achan and he was brought before the congregation of Israel, who did they stone to death? Well, the Bible says they stoned Achan and his sons and his daughters and his livestock and his possessions. Why? One man brought sin on his entire family. And that's the way Paul sees Adam. One man brought sin on the whole world. Through one man's sin, through one man's sin entered not just into Adam, but into mankind. And then the next phrase goes further. It says, and death through sin. Now, sin and death are diabolical twins. They always go together. The wages of sin is death, and so with Adam's sin came death. Now, the Bible talks about death in three aspects. There is physical death, there is spiritual death, and there is eternal death. And we see that with Adam because God said to Adam, in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. In the day. Well, Adam sinned and he lived to be 930 years old. So he didn't die physically in the day that he ate of it. How did he die in the day that he ate of it? He died spiritually. See, in that day he died spiritually and as a result of that came physical death and ultimately comes eternal death. And then the next phrase goes even a step further. He says, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death, physical, spiritual, and eternal is not the result of our personal sins. Death, physical, spiritual, and eternal is the result of Adam's one sin. You see, it's sin singular that brings death. It's not sins plural. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. You see, it's not the fact that you sin over and over and over again that makes you die. If that were true, the more you sin, you know, the more you sinned, the older and uglier you would get. So I would look at you and say, man, you've been sinning lately because you're losing more hair. It doesn't work that way. You see, when did you first sin? You first sinned thousands of years ago in the loins of Adam. And that's why the Bible says that we are born dead in sin. Verse 19 of our chapter makes it even more clear. Verse 19 says, For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Now listen carefully to what I'm going to say. Because this may sound trite, but this is very important. I want you to understand this. You are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. Your sin doesn't make you a sinner. Your sin proves that you're a sinner. See, when does an apple tree become an apple tree? After it bears fruit? No. It's already an apple tree. The apples just prove, display, that it is an apple tree. And your sin is the fruit that demonstrates who you are. You sinned when Adam sinned. And so you are born dead in sin. See, that's the real Adam bomb. He sinned and it affected all of us. 
Now, some people think that man is basically good. I don't think that anybody who said that has ever been a parent. If you've raised a child, you know that a baby is a very selfish creature. Everything in their world revolves around themselves. Their first word, if it's not their first word, it's their favorite word, is mine. How many of you had to teach your children to disobey? No, what you do is you have to take a stick and teach them to obey. The Bible says foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Psalm 51.5 says, I was shaped in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Psalm 58.3 says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. Job 14.1 says, Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Who can make the clean out of the unclean? No one. Well, you see, if Adam was unclean, then everyone that he produced was unclean all the way down to you and me. Adam willfully, knowingly, consciously decided to trade his allegiance for God for allegiance to Satan. He decided to become a, rebe a rebel. He said, no God, yes Satan. He became an enemy of God and a friend of Satan because he wanted to. And every man and woman born into this world has been God's enemy and Satan's friend ever since. That's why verse 10 of our chapter says you were enemies of God. You were born that way. Unless you think you're the exception, notice what he says in verse 12, all are sinners. That's why when a baby is born into this world and struggles for a few hours and then dies. How do we explain that? Did that baby sin? No. Then why did that baby die? Because through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, we commonly trace our ancestry back a few generations. We say, well, John gets his blue eyes from his mother's side, and Mary gets her red hair from her father, and he's a chip off the old block. But we seldom stop to realize that the lines run all the way back to Adam. You see, we are all distant relatives. In Adam's loins were all the genes and chromosomes which would form the pattern of the entire human race. And when he sinned, every characteristic within him was marred. And he passed that on to every one of us. When James and Christina Green have their baby in a few weeks, I'm going to take him in my arms and I'm going to say, he gets his good looks from his mom. And he gets that goofy stare from his dad. And then when the kid starts to throw a temper tantrum, I'm going to say, give him back, and I'm going to say, yeah, and he gets his sin nature from Grandpa Adam. You see, one man's deed affected the whole world. When Adam sinned, we all became sinners. You say, well, that doesn't seem fair. 
I mean, I wasn't even there. Everybody should get a chance to get back in the garden and try it on their own. Well, let me offer three answers to that objection. Answer number one, God is just. Whatever God does is the standard of justice, so we know that when God let Adam represent us all, it was right and it was fair. That's answer number one. Answer number two is given the opportunity, you would have blown it anyway. You've probably heard of the lumberjack by the name of Sam. He was out chopping down trees, working as a lumberjack, and every time he would strike a tree, he'd say in a complaining voice, Oh, Adam! Oh, Adam! One day a supervisor came by and said, Sam, how come all day long I hear you saying, Oh, Adam? And he said, Well, I have to work every day because of Adam, my forefather who sinned against God. And God said, By the sweat of your face you shall work and eat. And every time I strike this tree... It reminds me that if Adam hadn't sinned, I wouldn't have to be doing this. Well, one day a supervisor came by and he said, Sam, come with me. And he took him to his plush, huge, 10,000 square foot mansion. And he said, Sam, it's all yours. You can live in it. You can use the swimming pool, the racquetball court. You can call on the servants and they'll wait on you hand and foot. You can do whatever you want. There's only one thing I'm going to ask you not to do. And that is, there's a box on the dining room table. I don't want you to ever look in it. And Sam says, well, that sounds fair. I can do whatever I want. I can have access to the house. That's great. So Sam swam every day. He played tennis. He played racquetball. He had all three meals in bed. After about five months, he started looking at that box on the dining room table. So I wonder what's in the box. And they said, no, I, I don't want to mess up my time here. I, I don't want to jeopardize my stay. I'm not going to touch it. But after a year or so, he had tried everything. He had gotten used to everything. There was nothing new in the house anymore except that box on the dining room table. And so one day when no one was looking, he crept over to the dining room table and he just lifted up the edge of the box and out ran a little mouse and he couldn't catch it, and he couldn't find it. And when the supervisor dis discovered that he had lifted the box, he sent Sam back to the forest to work as a lumberjack. And whenever the supervisor came by, he could hear him saying, Oh, Sam. Oh, Sam. You see, you can't blame Adam because we would have all done the same thing. The Bible says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And then let, let me offer you a third answer to that objection. You see, the same principle that includes all of us in Adam's sin also includes all of us in Christ's death. So if you want to throw out the principle that puts you in Adam, that you've also got to throw out the principle that puts you in Christ. See, if God had judged you the way you think is fair, on your own with no relationship to Adam, you would perish. Because our only hope of salvation is that we can be judged in Jesus Christ as our representative just the way we were judged in Adam as our representative. Adam was our representative. When he committed one sin, we all became sinners. His one deed affected the whole world. 
And now Paul offers an example to make his point in verses 13 and 14. It's actually a parenthesis, and that's why it reads a little funny. But verse 13 says, For until the law, sin was in the world. Now that's obvious. Before Moses brought the law down from Mount Sinai, there was sin in the world. The first baby was a murderer. Early in, in time, man got so bad that God had to destroy him with a flood. And Genesis 6, 5 says the thoughts of their hearts were evil continually. Until the law came, there was sin in the world, verse 13, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Sin was there, but God didn't hold that sin against them. Sin was there, but God didn't hold it against them because there was no law given for them to break. So their personal sins were not put to their account. Nevertheless, verse 14 says, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of Adam's offense. Sin was there before the law. God didn't hold their personal sins against them, but guess what? They died anyway. He says they had not sinned in the likeness of Adam's sin. That is, they hadn't sinned in the face of a commandment of God. They had broken no law, so God couldn't hold their personal sins against them, but they died anyway. And why did they die? Because they had already sinned in Adam. Between Adam and Moses, all men died physically because they were already dead spiritually, not on the basis of what they did, but on the basis of what Adam did. That's his point. And then at the end of the verse, he says, verse 14, who is a type of him who was to come. That word type is the word used in John 20, 25, where Thomas says, unless I see the print of the nails in his hands. Print. It's also the word used by Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 6, where it says, now these things happen as examples for us. What he's telling us is that Adam is an example. He's a picture. He's a type of Christ. And how does he picture him one way? His one deed at one point in time affected the whole world. That's the corresponding figure. Now, second part of the passage, I want us to see the contrasting factors. Verses 15 to 21. Notice verse 15, but the free gift is not like the transgression. Verse 16, and the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. It's not like it. And what he's going to tell us here is there are two places where this analogy between Adam and Christ breaks down. There are two major differences in the two. Two contrasting factors. The first is a contrasting result. The second is a contrasting nature. First of all, a contrasting result in verses 15 to 17. Verse 15, But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The free gift is not like the transgression. He's saying they're different. The transgression of one man, Adam, affected many. And what was the result? They died. The gift of the one man, Jesus Christ, affected many. And what was the result? Well, what is the gift? When we come to Romans 6.23, we read, the gift of God is eternal life. So the gift is life. So they lived. Adam's one act brought death to many. Christ's one act brought life to many. 
Then notice verse 60. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Adam's one transgression brought judgment and condemnation. Many transgressions brought justification. So there are the contrasting results. Through Adam, we're condemned. Through Christ, we're declared righteous. But I want you to notice something in verse 16. You'd expect Paul to say one transgression at the beginning of the verse and then later say one act of righteousness, but he doesn't say that. Instead, he says one transgression brought condemnation and many transgressions brought justification. And I think what he's telling us is that one offense provoked God's immediate judgment to the full extent of his holiness. And many offenses, all the things that we do, provoked God's justification to the full extent of his grace. Adam's one sin called forth the judgment of God. Our many sins called forth the cross of Jesus Christ. And then verse 17, For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Through Adam's one transgression, death reigned. That's an interesting phrase. Death reigned. What's that mean? Death was king. Death was in control. And we still see that today. Death controls men's actions. You can plan what you're going to do tomorrow, but in reality, you may be on the obituary page tomorrow. You don't know. You don't have any control over that. Daryl Kyle was planning to be pitching for a pennant right now. It wasn't part of his plans to face death. You see, death reigns. Death is in control. It controls our actions. It also controls our attitudes. Because the major ex explanation of death, the really definition of death, is that it is separation. And spiritual death is separation from God. When Adam sinned, what did he do immediately? He fled and hid in the trees from God. He didn't want to face God. He didn't want to, to, to own up to God. And so death had done its work. It had killed him spiritually. It had broken that fellowship with God and he didn't want any part of it. And you see, men today go through physical life delaying the inevitable, which is that you are going to face God one day. We go through our temporal life, and it's, it's just a delay until finally physical death comes, and at that moment we stand before our Creator and we face Him. And men live in fear of death. That's their attitude. They have a fear of death because they know that with death comes the consequences of facing God. Death reigns. And so we live our lives as slaves to death. But you know what? This verse says, through Jesus Christ, we reign. That's an interesting statement. You'd expect him to say, in contrast to death reigns, life now reigns, but that's not what he says. He says, death reigned, and now you reign in life. And what he's saying is that we as believers reign over death. We live in a society that I would call a death-denying society. I mean, today, 
people go through life and they go to the gym and they work out, they go to the health spa, they get facelifts, they diet, they eat healthy foods, they use wrinkle creams to try to delay aging and death. In fact, we live in a culture that highlights the young and the healthy and really denies death. When somebody gets so old, we put them in a little home so we don't have to look at them anymore. When somebody gets real sick, we put them in a hospital, we let them die there because we don't want to see those things. We want to deny death. That's the nature of our culture. But let me suggest to you as a Christian, as a Christian, you are not death-denying, but you are death-defying. Because in the face of death, we can say with Paul, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? You see, in Adam, death reigned over us, but in Christ, we reign over death. So in Christ, we have a contrasting result. Life instead of death, righteousness instead of condemnation, and we reign over death instead of death reigning over us. And then the second point is a contrasting nature, and we see that real quickly in verse 18 and 19. Verse 18, so then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. One transgression resulted in condemnation to all. One act of righteousness resulted in justification to all. You see, the nature of their deeds was different. Adam's deed was a transgression. Christ's deed was an act of righteousness. And then verse 19, For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the disobedience of the one the many will be made, will be made righteous. Through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. Through one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And so there are the contrasting factors. In Adam's one act of disobedience we receive death and judgment and slavery. In Christ's one act of obedience, we receive life and righteousness and kingship. We reign over death. You say, I, I think I got it. But I've only got one more question. What about those of us who do sin in the likeness of Adam? What about the sins committed after the law? I mean, he talked about what happened between the law and Moses. Now we've got the law. Now God tells us what to do. What about the sins that we commit after the law comes? Well, notice verse 20. And the law came in that the transgression might increase. The law is like a magnifying glass. When the law came in, sin increased. Sin was magnified. But notice the rest of verse 20. And the law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now, I don't know how your translation reads there, but those are two separate words that he uses. And they should be two separate words in your translation. The first word, increased, is a word that means much or many. It means to increase in number, to grow, to multiply. The second word that he uses in re relation to grace abounded is a word that means excess or surplus. And then it has a Greek prefix on the front, huper, which means super. So it's a word that means superabundant, overflowing with excess. So Paul says, where sin increases in number, grace overflows with excess. Now, this is a verse that I think is very important for us to understand because naturally we don't operate this way. 
Because I think we think oftentimes that grace is withheld because of sin. The very opposite is true. Grace is not withheld because of sin. See, when somebody offends me, I have a difficult time even being civil toward that person. But on the contrary, when I offend God, His grace abounds. What happened when Adam and Eve sinned? Well, they hid themselves thinking that God would withdraw Himself from them, which He had every right to do. But what did God do? He sought them and called for them and met their need and, and killed the sacrifice and clothed them because that's the way grace is. When Peter denied the Lord three times, he figured that he had sinned too greatly. He figured that God would withhold his grace. And so what did Peter do in John 21? He went back to fishing. But what did Jesus do? Jesus found him and recommissioned him because that's the way grace is. When sin increases, grace abounds all the more. Now, I don't mean to suggest for a moment that God condones sin. He doesn't. In fact, God hates sin so much that He sent His Son to die in order to rescue you from its destructive tyranny. God hates sin in you. And He is continuously working to remove it and give you victory over it. But my point here is that God will never withhold His grace toward you because of your sin. In fact, it's in the midst of our sin that we most find grace to be abundant. And then in verse 21, he finishes by saying that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. When Adam fell, it appeared that sin was about to triumph completely. Sin reigned in death, but his point is that grace abounded. Grace intervened in abundant excess. And how did grace triumph over sin? It replaced it with righteousness. How did grace triumph over death? It replaced it with eternal life. And how did that happen? We're back to that phrase, through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's in His righteousness and it's His life given to us. And that's all because of grace. And now He says, grace Reigns. Now, I'd like to spend a whole Sunday on that phrase. Grace reigns. Grace rules. Death ruled in the past. Now grace rules. Grace reigns. Grace is the king. Now, I titled this sermon, Jesus Replaced What Adam Erased. That's actually not a very good title because it gives you the idea that Adam erased it and Jesus put it back the same way it was. That's not what happened. Adam brought sin, and Jesus replaced it with something much greater. In fact, if you look at verse 15, notice what he says there. Much more did the grace of God and the gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Much more did grace abound. Verse 17, much more those who received the abundance of grace. Those are good words. Verse 20, grace abounded all the more. What's he telling us? He's telling us that in Jesus Christ, we gain much more than we ever lost in Adam. I mean, think about it. Adam knew God's holiness 
He knew God's faithfulness. He knew God's kindness. He knew God's love. But it wasn't until he sinned that he experienced God's grace. The sin of Adam brought to light a part of God that we never would have seen apart from sin, and that is the grace of God. And Paul now tells us that grace reigns. That means that's not the way God treats you every once in a while. That's the way God treats you all the time. Grace is on the throne. And all that is only possible because one man by one deed can affect the whole world. One man, Adam, did one deed that brought sin and death and condemnation on the world, and you are united to him by being born. One man, Christ, did one deed that brought righteousness and life and victory to the world, and you are united to him by being born again. And so the question I want to ask you in closing this morning is, are you still in Adam or are you in Christ? You see, it's not automatic. We all become sinners because of Adam, but we don't all become saved because of Christ. That's why if you look back at verse 17, it says it's for those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. God's grace is overflowing in excess today, but you have to receive it. God's gift of salvation and eternal life is absolutely free, but you have to receive it. 